Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther. And today I have with me a friend of mine who is perhaps one of the most knowledgeable and sought-after engineers when it comes to EMP and hardening systems to reduce resistance to EMP or re- reduce the effects of EMP. That is, of course, Jim Petrosky. You can go read about him. He's the president of the National Institutes for Deterrent Studies these days. He's a professor. He was at Army FA-52. He's done quite a bit. He's written, if you're really interested in in lots of heavily math-laden articles, he's your guy. So with that, welcome to NucleCast. Thank you, Adam, for that uh, probably over-the-top, I would say, <laughs> introduction. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm Jim Petrosky, but I have been studying this uh, electromagnetic pulse and really electro- electronic threats for quite some time. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, you say, math-laden, but I would say anyone interested in it, it's a fascinating area of study. It requires a a diverse set of backgrounds in physics and electronics and nuclear engineering and experimentation and theory and computation. And if you can sort of wrap your hands around things like that or that interests you, uh, by all means, uh, talk to me sometime, catch me on my uh, LinkedIn, whatever, uh, to talk about how to become part of that uh that specialty because there are not many people doing it and it's a very important topic. Especially nowadays with, with the, you know, recent events with president Vladimir Putin suspending participation. I read an article yesterday that says that he is preparing and, and the wording was somewhat careful, but the impression you got was that he was preparing to be able to test again and that he was also preparing to expand his own arsenal. And so this topic is, you know, it's a prescient topic given global events. And then we had the Chinese balloon, which some said that this could be a precursor to their ability to, to uh, have to launch EMP attacks against the United States and not necessarily be nuclear ones. Uh, So it's, it's a, it's a prescient topic. So that said, can you tell our audience what exactly is an electromagnetic pulse? What is it? How does it work? What does it do? Yeah, and and thank, thanks, Adam. And again, uh, you know, probably starting out because uh, many people I, I, from our audience may not realize we're talking a lot about electromagnetic pulse these days uh, with regard to nuclear weapons, but the, it's not a new topic. It was well understood a long time ago about these various electromagnetic disturbances that uh, early nuclear testing, uh, we understood that there would be an electromagnetic pulse developed. 
And in fact, even before that, before the nuclear age, um, and certainly even now, there's a threat of a global electromagnetic pulse caused by cosmic events. In fact, there was an event, and uh, I would uh, suggest our audience look it up, called the Carrington Event. And that a Carrington event occurred back in the late 1800s, where there was a huge uh, electromagnetic disturbance in space. And because of that space electromagnetic disturbance, it caused uh, electromagnetic disturbance on Earth. Uh, We had huge auroras. Uh, lots of the roars caused by electronics or electrons in the atmosphere moving around, creating that disturbance. And because of that, telegraph lines, et cetera, and I'm going to get back to that, telegraph lines, et cetera, were damaged, even burned. People were shocked that we're operating those systems back then. And I'll get back to that because I think it lays the basis to say it's not a new event. It's something we know. And it's not even something that affects just modern equipment. So now let me flip it over to what is an electromagnetic pulse. Um, simply put, electromagnetic pulse is a disturbance, electromagnetic disturbance that drives currents in electron in, in electronic material, anything that can drive a current. Primarily, we think of as metals, wires, etc. And that is really the way in which that disturbance, if you will, um, can damage equipment. It's usually short term, although the cosmic events occurred over days uh, from a nuclear event it occurs over at least the initial electromagnetic pulse occurs over a very short period of time, less than seconds, but can last based upon which component of that uh, can last up to a couple minutes uh, long. And so that electromagnetic disturbance then, you know, can drive currents, if you will, drive current and equipment and cause damage. Now you said that nuclear weapons, because we're we're we largely think about. Uh, you've seen the the charts and images where they've had a high yield nuclear weapon detonate over the middle of the United States, and then you see the rings that go out for hundreds and up to thousands of miles. And the you know the assertion is that all electronic equipment within these hundreds and potentially. Th- thousands of miles around will go dead and what you know will essentially we as a society will be brought back to the sort of the the pre-electricity era is is that an accurate assertion or you know what what is sort of hyperbole and what is reality yeah i i appreciate that that state because yeah i've i've been asked that many times like Okay, there's a bunch of, uh, and, and for our audience to understand, oftentimes when we think of the electromagnetic pulse, again, and we'll, we'll go back uh, to, uh, I, I need to define it more deeply. The electromagnetic pulse that we're talking about is one that is an electromagnetic disturbance that has a large geographical area, and that occurs only when a nuclear weapon is detonated at very, very high altitudes. And so the electromagnetic pulse, if you will, affects a very large out, uh, a ver- very large geographical region. And these uh, circles that Adam has uh, stated are basically areas in which the electric field, which is what drives the currents, is affected on the ground. And so, uh, and so we can determine what that electric field is going to be. And we can uh, we can even determine what that electric field 
uh, will drive in terms of currents. However, um, the effect, and this is a part of the electromagnetic pulse, and I'll, I'll talk about later on as well, is sort of the mystery in all this. It depends. I always say dots, which is depends on the situation. It depends on the situation whether everything is going to be, I think Adam used the word fried, so damaged. <laughs> and we'll go back to that in a second. Um, but everything is going to be damaged or very little could be damaged. We don't know because you don't know the situation at the time. And here's my, here's my favorite example. My favorite example, because everyone comes to me when we talk about EMP. And the first thing I say is, will my telephone, will my cell phone work if we have an EMP? And my answer always is maybe. And the reason it's maybe is because the operation of your phone at the time of the EMP, remember, it's a very short term thing that happens. So if your phone is transmitting at the time, it's probably more vulnerable than if it's, say, locked in a suitcase, a metal suitcase or in a metal building where it was protected. You don't know. However, it may be that other things may be more vulnerable, which is where I want to head today. More of the vulnerable pieces that are, that are global and or international or even national level that can affect us. And that's the power grid, which is a little harder to protect than a cell phone. You can't take the entire power grid and stick it in a metal building. It's not happening, at least right now. Does that sort of catch your uh, question there, Adam? Yeah, I mean, it's in, in a previous episode of Nuclecast, we had Rob Spaulding, retired mm-hmm. general, Air Force general, who now runs a company called Sempre that they build, I think they're focused on building cell towers or building components for cell towers that make them essentially Faraday cages. And so they're protected so that the communication system would continue to work. But you bring up the, the power, you know, the power grid. And, and I wonder what does it take because we have all these thousands of miles of above ground cables. My, you know, many of the men in my family, they either worked in the oil industry or they were linemen. And so, you know, I've got a cousin right now who travels the country uh, you know, hanging power lines and fixing power lines. So I'm somewhat familiar with the, the challenges there. And I wonder how hard would it be for us to harden our, our, you know, power, our grid such that if there was an EMP attack against the United States, the power would continue to flow and our society would continue to function. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's the, that's the real interest from a critical infrastructure standpoint and, of course, a national infrastructure standpoint. Because, you know, going back to your comment, if we create and uh, create a cell phone tower that has some sort of a Faraday cage around it that only lets the signal in and out that lets you communicate but doesn't let the EMP broad uh, signal into it, I'll, I'll say that's a very difficult challenge. Um but if you had something like that, the cell phone tower still needs power. So even though it functions or just like your cell phone, you pull it out of the case, it can function. If nothing's communicating with it, it's basically a, you know, a, a doorstop. So the key piece of our, our national interest is the power grid itself because sure. if the power, if the power fails us, then the 
country and its function, the operation of the government services, emergency services, all of our strike back, yeah, our strike capability, our military service. Over time, we will continue to degrade until we can, of course, bring that power back because we are a power hungry um, society. It's just the way we are. It's who we are as an industrial society. So, so, so to answer your question about the power grid, so the power grid is extremely vulnerable for the reasons you mentioned. There are long power lines and those long power lines, uh, are, are in the air. And so the electromagnetic disturbance I mentioned earlier, um, can couple or basically the, the, the electromagnetic wave that comes from the EMP at a high altitude, uh, a component of that called E3 is the kind of wave that will couple with the electromag or to, to the power lines and then drive currents. And those currents, by the way, just from a physics standpoint, I know, Adam, you don't want me to go deep into physics, <laughs> but the nice thing is, but, but actually these are simple. When you, when you bring it down to it, still simple concepts. When the current flows in a material, it manifests itself as heat. Sure. That's why your stove, when you plug it in, if you have an electric stove, uh, you plug it in and your burner gets hot because there's currents driving through those wires that are underneath your pot and they turn bright red and that's, that's heat. The electromagnetic pulse drives currents into wires and it manifests itself as heat. And then again, the word you used fry, which is okay. It heats your electronics and your computer and melts or damages components of it that then destroy it or at least cause it to, you know, malfunction in some manner. Now, back to the power grid, those long lines act as antennas and they couple to the, you know, the EMP and the, or the EMP couples to them and drives those currents. So that is the vulnerability. So the question is, how do you solve that problem? Well, we have a huge power grid and we have, I think there's six sectors in the United States where each sector is somewhat independent of the next, but they also are interdependent. So one power grid can suffice to, to drive another one. And how do we protect it? Well, there's multiple ways. One is you put all the power, all the power lines go underground deep enough that the EMP won't, won't connect to it. That's a huge, huge cost throughout the entire country. Um, and so there's a, there's a cost at it, critical infrastructure change. But there's a second piece of this that, uh, that the, the equipment that supplies that power grid, because it is so colossal, um, requires very specialized equipment. Some of it for transfer stations may take 10 to 20 months to even purchase. And it's not purchased inside the United States. Oh yeah. The Germans so you, and the, the Chinese make yep. most of the transformers. At, that's right. And most of those transformers still take time to purchase. Now we do have, there is a government program of, 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 of sharing. So if one power grid goes poor, they can share components from other either, uh, uh, cannibalizing, uh, uh, ones in storage, et cetera. But after a period of time, you're going to run out of these things that take many, many months to repair. And they're so, expensive. You ask me and they're very expensive. So you're asking me, I'm going to tell you Petrosky's view on this. We need to think about our power grid in much smaller chunks so that we can survive because it is a national level problem. And so um, some of this is already happening with the smart power grid as we move to the renewables approach. Wind, because it is a variable power, has to be managed differently than you would baseline power you get from coal and gas and nuclear uh, and hydro. 
Um, solar's the same way. You don't get any solar power at nighttime in certain regions. So the power grid has to account for that. So now you have a sharing part of that power grid. And my argument, or at least my, my view and seems to be the way our country is going in terms of protection is to break the power grid into smaller chunks. So it, one region goes out, the rest can still survive and each one is operated independently to do sharing. And the components, the huge, huge components that there are only a few of that we are dependent on other countries for can be dispensed in, in, uh, and replaced with smaller components that are manufactured locally. And that's still going to require a national effort to do, but it's, it's being thought. There are several reports have been done in the, uh, especially in the last 10 years and looking at the strategy to survive electromagnetic pulse. That, that makes some sense there, Adam. I'm, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it's, I guess I, I wonder, in addition to breaking apart the electric, you know, that, you know, we have the Western electric grid, the Texas grid, there's mm-hmm. the Eastern grid. And, and when, you know, there's this sort of cascading set of effects that, that we've seen in California and we saw, we saw them at Texas when they had one of their harshest winters on record. We've seen them in the Northeast. I wonder if there's an ability in terms of building uh, defensive capabilities like Faraday cages that, and putting them, you know, at substations and putting them in other components and places where we can protect these grids. Cause I just wonder, you know, like we're seeing this with, with the recent passage of the chips act to bring mm-hmm. back chip manufacturing from, so that if, China, for example, tries to invade Taiwan, which manufactures almost all the chips, that we can have the capacity to build them here. And so I wonder if our ability to, you know, build defensive capabilities, say Faraday cages, for example, or new new transformers or, you know, and I even wonder, is the electric system you know, it's, it's sort of a, a legacy system. I know we're talking about like smart meters and things of that nature, but I wonder if, you know, that's, that's largely going to be able to, uh, you know, it reduces manpower requirements. So you don't have meter men coming into your backyard to read your meters anymore. And, you know, in some places where you have smart thermostats, the power company can turn your thermostat up or down based on the weather and the the load generation. But are we doing anything to really build a resilient electrical grid? So, yeah. So your idea about Faraday cages, first of all, I say the best Faraday cage that you could build or the best protection you have is earth. Yeah. And it certainly is cheap. And so, you know, uh, again, my, my view of going underground versus going above ground, and there are other good reasons to do that because of weather and et cetera, um, seem to make a lot of sense. But again, taking all of our transfer and power stations and putting them underground yeah. is a colossal effort. I mean, it's a huge effort and it's an expensive effort. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and then you consider, you know, I, I just want to go back because you mentioned it, you know, about 85% of our, uh, uh, our transformers are purchased from overseas mm-hmm. with again, you know, 20 to 30 month lead time and many of them are like custom built. They're designed specifically. So in order to solve this problem, we've sort of walked ourselves into this problem. 
We've got to walk ourselves out of it. And so the way we're going to have to walk ourselves out of it is make an effort step by step. And I'll, I'll talk about a few of those steps that at least Petrosky's view on this idea of smaller, smaller power grids, more manageable, more, more uh, developed, maybe state by state. And it opens itself to a couple things. First of all, the renewables. Second of all, small nuclear power, which by the way, can provide great baseline and be very controlled. But the other piece you talk about, I just, I just want to mention, and uh, there's a, uh, a namesake of mine and, uh, uh, named Henry Petrosky. He has passed away. He used to write for nature and, and Henry Petrosky, uh, wrote several books. And one of his, um, uh, one of his quotes that I really like is with every solution comes a problem. <laughs> and, uh, in, in this case here, every time you, you solve your problem by saying, well, we're going to make a smart power grid by putting, you know, small electronics to be able to control things from one place. Well, those small electronics are typically more vulnerable to the instantaneous EMP than are the large, uh, larger electronics. And so now you say, well, now I have a more vulnerable situation. So I've created a new problem. However, uh, if we manufactured them ourselves, having spares and purchasing spares and having them available is a solution. So you've got to look at the problem holistically. And when I say holistically, I talk about everything from the power source to the utility of the consumer, which in the end is really, you know, who we're looking, you know, we're looking at. And we, we can talk about the military, but the military is just another consumer. And uh, e- even in wartime, a uh, special consumer, but still a consumer. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Yeah, so you mentioned the military, and if if we think about the majority of bases, I mean, let's say we we've talked about EMP from a nuclear detonation, and you know we could assume that that would be optimized to take out the ability of the nuclear bases to perform their functions, and all of those bases are primarily reliant on commercial power, and so I. You know, I wonder, has the military and the government given much thought and effort into how to mitigate, you know, an EMP threat? Is there is there anything, uh, you know, we have studies that get funded, and so we sort of admire the problem, but are we doing anything to fix the problem? Yeah, again, yeah, it's a this nuclear cast would last for days or months, or you could take one of my, you know, I used to teach 10 week courses on these things. So that's a lot to swallow Adam. So let me, let me just go back and focus on just the power requirements, because if I, 
if I go other places, we'll be here all day. And that's a good idea. I'll come back to your nuclear castle you want to, but let's just focus on the power for now because it's complex enough. So from a military, so, so remember society, continuation of government, banking, power, emergency services, all the kinds of things that occur that you need it following a, a loss of power in the United States are really important from the national infrastructure uh, standpoint. However, for the most part, and I say it you know that way uh, with my air quotes, so for those on the video, you see my air quotes, for the most part, those things can wait a period of time to be restored. I live in Ohio, you know, the power to, we have a windstorm, I lose power. Two days later, they come in, they fix the power lines, I get power back. Uh, you know, I don't get to watch TV for a while. My cell phone doesn't work, but for the most part, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not dependent on power all the time. However, the military needs to have power very quickly, especially if it's a national emergency and especially if we have a national response. So what does the military do? Well, we have, we, we, we can't rely fully on off base power. And so secondary power sources via generators, via battery backup, et cetera, are built into systems that are critical over a period of time. But notice I say over a period of time, and I won't get into operational aspects because they're beyond the scope of what we talk about, but that's part of the operational planning to survive the EMP. So if your equipment su survives, you're in a, you're, you talk about Faraday cage, by the way, for everybody uh, in, uh, listening, a Faraday cage is nothing other than a metal structure that would basically stop the electromagnetic pulse, the electromagnetic disturbance from entering into your region and coupling those currents that I talked about earlier. So it's basically a shield. And if you have shielded equipment and it's inside an area, you just need to provide power via generator or battery, whatever, independent of the power grid. But again, as you go longer and longer in time, you need, you know, military members to be able to go from point A to where you are. So you have to have, they have, their vehicles have to operate, the transportation, you know, red lights, et cetera, have to work. If there's an accident, you have to have people be able to remove that accident to get them out of the way. All those other consequences slow down that military operation and they have to be part of the plan. So the national infrastructure is really important in that respect. And obviously in the long term, it's extremely important because the citizenry needs to be able to function so all these other things can function. So Peter Pry, who was mm -hmm. a, you know, an EMP expert who wrote mm -hmm. frequently about the threats from EMP, uh, really did a good job of trying to let the U.S. and let the American people know and understand the threat and what it meant. But I wonder, have we done sufficient research to understand what the real implications are of an actual EMP uh, attack on the U.S. I mean, do we actually know, like, how how damaging it would be? Would it take out the power? Would it take out vehicles? Do we know how long it would take electrical systems to be restored? Do, do we have any sense of of how we would recover or is that still something that we're, we have insufficient information on? 
So we have studies. And again, this is the reason why I think this is the reason why it becomes difficult to wrap your hands around this, especially from the political standpoint. I think from a scientific standpoint, I can tell you the risk to a component and maybe even the time it would take to replace it and or repair it uh, from an engineering standpoint. Those pieces are well known. But the the risk analysis is so broad, as you said, you know, a nuclear bomb goes over top of the United States. We get these little rings, uh, these rings that you talked about, where we have various electromagnetic fields that are developed. Those electromagnetic fields have direction to them. So depending on my orientation at that nanosecond of time that it occurs or the direction of power lines in the area that I'm in, it will either couple or not couple. Those things are exceptionally complex. And so what happens is you have really you get two camps. You get a camp that says it's nothing. It's not going to happen. It's not a big deal. And it may not. It may not be a big deal in certain areas, or it may be catastrophic in others. So politically, how do you center uh, a program on something that some there's legitimate reason to say my cell phone will function after the EMP? Right. I'm fine. My car will. Or my car is driving north-south versus east-west, and it couples to it, it's going to shut down. How do you? So, so you've got to do that risk analysis. That's why I like backing off to the power grid and looking at the concomitant effects throughout the United States of all the functions of our society. And again, you know, we talk about banking, government, emergency services, health services, all those things have to happen for us as a society in order for us to function. And our military over time becomes more and more reliant on those happening. You know, I can put I can put a soldier in a Faraday cage and stick them in a in a in a place and hold them there for 24 hours. But, you know, what about their family? What about their breathing? What about their food and water? You know, those kind of things. And I, I know it's a simple, simple thought process, but you start to see how quickly this becomes complicated. So I think from a scientific standpoint, we have a pretty good handle on what will happen. I think we also have a very good idea. You, you mentioned someone I can't remember uh, earlier that we have ways in which we can mitigate the effects of an EMP through optical coupling systems to be able to transmit data. Uh, we can have power systems built underground, et cetera. But we are, our, our country was not built with that intent and, and purpose in our power grid. And so now we have to start making those changes because of that vulnerability. So now as we end the show, because unfortunately we are out of time, what would you want the listeners to leave this episode of Nuclecast remembering? What, what's, what's that important takeaway for them? Well, you know, I never stick the one thing at them. So, <laughs> Uh, so you know me. So I, I think the first thing is what I started with. This is a fascinating field, technical field. And if you are interested in that, uh, you should look at, you know, look at the various aspects of learning about electrical engineering and physics and you know, plasma science, all those technical words that really mean something because you could make a difference as we move forward. I think the second piece is that we have to put the, we have to decide as a country, and so I want our, our listeners to hear that this is a vulnerability that, you know, is, is an important vulnerability 
to maintain our way of life. And so therefore, we have to put some effort to that. We can't just ignore the problem. And it may take a fair amount of effort, national effort, to build the infrastructure in a way that can survive an electromagnetic pulse. And I want to reemphasize, this is not just a nuclear issue. Tomorrow, there could be a solar, a solar event that could create the same thing that happened at the Carrington event, you know, more than a hundred, more than a hundred years ago and could devastate us or leave us vulnerable in many ways. So it's an important aspect of what can go on. That was what solar cycle 10. I can't remember which one we're on now. So, you know, so that's what I'd like the listeners to walk away with is that this is important and worth looking into and becoming a part of that, you know, at least being aware of it, if not being a part of the solution would be really important. All right. With that, Jim Petrosky, thanks for coming on Nuclecast. It was, uh, it was always a pleasure to, to have you come on and share your engineering background and experience. So, so thanks. Well, thank you. And, uh, Adam, I, I appreciate you inviting me here. And, uh, I'll just make a plug for the National Institute for Deterrence Studies as well, because our organization, just like yours, is interested in making people aware of what's happening, uh, with our national infrastructure and our national strategy as well. So thank you for your efforts to change that, Adam. Thanks. And I want to thank the listeners for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. And we look forward to having you on the next one. Thanks. Well, we just had a podcast discussing EMP with Jim Petrosky. It was pretty interesting. I tell you, my takeaway, my sort of afterthought on this is Jim's view that the solution to the EMP problem in regard to the electrical grid is to disaggregate. And this is something we're actually talking about with JADC2 and, you know, how the military interacts and how, you know, the the joint force operates. Disaggregation is sort of a, a big thing. And so it was interesting to hear him say disaggregation is his solution as well to break the, you know, the big Western grid and the Eastern grid and, you know, these grids apart such that, you know, you mitig- you can potentially mitigate the the damages that that could happen. And it is also interesting for him to say that, you know, it all depends. And so we really, you know, we can look in a very defined space and understand under a certain set of circumstances and conditions we, when we very carefully understand the variables, what's going to happen, but that there are so many variables in the broader world that we really can't say with high fidelity exactly what's going to happen uh, in the event of an EMP. So I I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Hopefully you you found it interesting. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.